For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, mourn through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, mourn through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Meta Sutta This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise but not puffed up, and let one not desire great possessions even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong and high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another nor despise any being and any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world, standing or walking, sitting or lying down during all one's waking hours. Let one practice the way with gratitude, not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, freed from sense appetites. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness we have chanted the Metta Sutta. We dedicate this merit to all original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha. Our first woman ancestor, great teacher Maha Prajapati. Our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu. The perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri. To the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world, gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, mahasattvas.
Prajna Paramita. When he is ready, Tygen will announce tonight's speaker. Good evening, everyone. Welcome, welcome. Uh, so maybe all of you know Howard, or most of you anyway, but Howard Ruan is a longtime practitioner, longtime ancient dragon, um, practiced Korean Zen for a long time before each came to Ancient Dragon Zen Gate. And he's now one of our coordinators at our Hyde Park group, which meets Wednesday evening at six o'clock. So check the website. There's a different Zoom link, but um, he's uh, Howard and Alex who's here are among the coordinators there. And uh, so I'm very happy to have Howard. Uh, oh, Howard's been studying at UC Divinity School and so is very well versed in Buddhist teaching. So, uh, Howard, welcome. Thank you, Tygen. Um I don't know about well versed. I think I just uh, one word, knowing that I don't know. <laughs> Um, so, um, the title of my talk is Flowers Fall, Weeds Grow. I think that some of you will, will recognize that language. Um, so, you know, things have been flux in the world and so much of it also feels the same. Like everything's changed and nothing has changed. Same old crap over and over again. And it's different every time. And, you know, there's a few that um, we know, uh, some big ones that I can think of, right? Like the pandemic, the state of it is changing in the United States, maybe, I guess. Um, but it's raging on in other parts of the world. Um, the Biden administration, it's a pretty big, significant symbolic change from the Trump administration. And yet we're still seeing kind of very similar American neoliberal practices as usual. Um, as we all know, uh, what's happening in, between Israel and Palestinians, um, some of the worst violence we've seen in years, and also it's not new. So things change and we keep having this, oh, this again, and we feel what we feel. And, you know, I'm holding these world events as as I handle some um a lot of different feelings about my own personal situation. So of course, all that is a backdrop. And the most significant thing for me right now, um, beyond my feelings about these big giant world events that are happening, um, is that as I had mentioned, you know, I'm been studying at New Chicago Divinity School. I've been doing the social work degree too. And I'm two, three weeks off from finishing um, my graduate education, uh, but four years, I'm tired. I'm so tired. <laughs> Um, uh, this, this last few weeks have been uh, great practice and patience for me. <laughs> um, you know, despite all of it, I, I, despite all the problems that have come up, you know, I've always loved school. It's an excuse to do nothing but learn. I've learned and grown so much and I'm actually pretty loath to end the experience, even if that patience is wearing thin. Um, there's a lot of issues in higher education in New Chicago is, not 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 special on that. Um, but this also comes with a lot of other things too, like friends and colleagues moving on. I'm grateful to have another year with Alex in Chicago, at least. Um, relationships are transitioning, environments and spaces are changing, and it's funny because I had experienced this sense of loss with great personal change. Um, in my life, I remember when I was finishing my undergrad back in 2011-ish, um, and I really mourned the change in friendships, the change in my environment. Um, I feared losing all of what happened um, in these last four years in advance since I started, uh, when I started graduate school. So I started in 2017, and in 2017, I was already scared and sad for the things I was going to lose in 2021. Um, and it's still there. Um, I, I have, uh, been anticipating it for four years and, uh, still there. <laughs> Anticipatory grief is a powerful thing. So I can't really do much about it. You know, I, 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 I want to move on. Um, 
can't wait to do other things um, with my life that I really care about. Um, I'm planning to do chaplain residency at Rush next year, and that's what Alex and I uh, will be doing. Um, so I can't wait to have time for music again. I have barely changed my guitar strings for the last couple of years. Um, those things are rusty. I love the idea of being able to read and study whatever I want at my own pace. I can read fiction again. So I think the, the most obvious Buddhist here concept is impermanence. Um, that's kind of the obvious one here. How we, how do we grapple with it? How do we respond to it? How do we deal with it or how do we not deal with it? Um, it's been a lot of time the last four years and especially these last two, um, because I've had to think a lot about this thesis uh, that I have written, um, thinking and writing about Dogen. So I think it's only natural for me to turn to him. I do think that he remains one of the most beautiful and poignant writers in the entire tradition. Um, I think I'd like to spend a little more time again on Dogen, even though I spent so much time with him already. So, the title of this talk, uh, many of you probably already know this passage pretty intimately well, so I'm probably, you know, saying nothing nothing new. Um, but if impermanence is on my side, then, you know, it'll probably be a little bit different. Um, context, I think, is always important. Dogen, founder of the 13th century, uh, founder of the 13th century, founder of the um, 13th century founder of the Soto School, in which we practice wrote the masterwork called the Shobo Genzo, and in the text he wrote a fascicle called Genjo Koan. And it's a pretty text now for anyone who wants to read or study or practice Dogen. And uh, I think it's important to note, Dogen um, impermanence and in, in, in grief was a major part of his life. One of his major losses was his mother when he was young. Um, and he lived during a time of great upheaval, great, upheaval, great social change, um, Kamakura Buddhism, uh, the era in the era the, the the sort of era of Buddhism in which he lived was known for a lot of just changes um, in the larger social political structures, and a lot of the Buddhists at that time were responding to that uh, very directly. So this fascicle Genjo Koan, um, it's translated various ways. I just grabbed like three different ways that people have translated it because there's there's too many. Um, one is Genjo Koan can be translated as manifesting suchness. Another is actualizing the fundamental point. And uh, I, I, I quite like this one. It's a bit wordy, but uh, Shohaku Okamura um, translates as, as the longer to answer the question from true reality to the practice of our everyday activity. So I think all three are, 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 are getting at, at what Genjo Koan is or, or, or means or whatever word we want to use for that. I think all three of those have some kind of grasp or point, you know, are pointing in some way at what Genjo Koan uh, denotes for us. So, the opening paragraph is all that I want to look at and all I want to like settle on here. So I'm just going to read it and note like sentence by sentence. So sentence one, when all dharmas are the Buddha Dharma, there's delusion and realization, practice, life and death, Buddhas and living beings, Sentence two, when the 10,000 dharmas are without fixed self, there is no delusion and no realization, no buddhas and no living beings, no birth and death. Sentence three, since the way by nature goes beyond the dichotomy of abundance and deficiency, there is a rising and perishing, delusion and realization, living beings and buddhas. Sentence four. Therefore, flowers fall even though we love them. Weeds grow though we dislike them. And so I want to, to focus on this paragraph because it, it's, I think it's um, 
it's a great summary of Buddhist teaching in general. And it's, 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 it's also, um, I think captures the essence of, of what Kenjo Koan, the, the fascicle is about, as well as the, the concept of Kenjo Koan. Um, and he says it very succinctly, very quickly at the beginning of the fascicle. Um, <clears throat> and Kenjo Koan was one of the earliest texts that I had ever read from Dogen. And I remember uh, being absolutely bewildered by it and it didn't make any sense. I'm not sure if it makes more sense. I think I'm just more okay with it. Not making total sense. <laughs> um, but yeah, these sentences can ha- haunted me from the beginning and continue to haunt me to this day. Um, so this first sentence, when all dharmas are the Buddha dharma, there's delusion and realization, practice, life and death for those in living beings. Um, we can understand that, I think, as... as and I'm, I'm kind of going off what Shohaku Okamura talks about um, in his book, Realizing Genjo Koan. Um that there's like an affirmation here. It's, it's very clear that um, we're talking about a world in which there is both delusion and both realization, that there's life and death, that there's a cause and effect here, that the goal here is for us to move from one to the other thing, um, that you are there to do this practice, to transform your life, that samsara to nirvana or is a is a is a one-way street <laughs> that you go from one to the other um in the second sentence when the ten thousand dharmas are without fixed self there's no delusion and no realization no buddhas and no living beings no birth and no death It's a lot of negation here. There's a lot of knowing, uh, no, and oh, ing here. Um, he cancels out the things that he said before, um, which is a, a kind of interesting move, uh, especially if you are familiar with the Heart Sutra, where Heart Sutra uh, basically takes all the basic concepts of Buddhism and like says no <laughs> to each of them, line by line. Um, the 12 links of causation that start with ignorance, those are negated. So you were not talking about the way that things rise and fall. Um, the Heart Sutra also negates and, and says no to the four noble truths themselves, not even those things. Um, and I see Dogen here uh, doing exactly that. So in sentence one, we have, yeah, there is a way. There's a, there is a definitely suffering and there's definitely a way out of it. Um, in the second one, he re- there's a reversal of that. Um, and I think in the spirit of the Heart Sutra, there's a... Um, don't attach even to the Buddhist teaching. Um, so yeah, there's suffering and there's a way out of it. And that way out of it leads to nirvana, but also don't attach to that. There is no suffering. And if there's no suffering, it's also no nirvana. So there's a freedom even from our desire to escape. And the third sentence I, I see is, is very like Dogen starting to um, uh, really throw in his own interpretation of these two moves. Um, since the Buddha way is by nature goes beyond the dichotomy of abundance and deficiency. There's a rising and perishing Delusion and realization, living beings and buddhas. And so it's not one or the other, it's kind of both. Even though it goes beyond these things, there is still yet suffering in the world. There is still yet um, a a path to practice. There is something to do about it or to do around it, to do with it. I don't know what preposition you want to use. Prepositions are are not fun, <laughs> or they're fun, they're fun, they're just tricky in Buddhism, right? Um, and I, I uh, reminded of the way that the, the Heart Sutra um, plays with form and emptiness. Emptiness is form, form is emptiness, that which is emptiness is form. That is, um, such that you can't even quite tell the difference, what is form and what is emptiness is no longer that stable. Um, 
Nakamura says a, says a really beautiful thing uh, at one point in his book about this sentence uh, that quote everything we do is prajna that in a sense prajna or wisdom or as um, one of one of uh, a professor of mine recently uh, translates it gnosis which I'm really curious about. Um, Everything we do is is part of it. Everything that we do is is it? I'm not sure, um, but it's just there's a sense of it's not separate from us. Wisdom, and then there's sentence four, um, which I think is the most beautiful one of the most beautiful lines, and it's amazing how how short he manages to keep it. Um, Therefore, flowers fall, even though we love them. Weeds grow, though we dislike them. And I, I, I think it, the academic literature says this stuff, but I, I also think just like, I think you can read it pretty easily in two ways. Um, I think a very natural knee-jerk way, I think I know I've, I've read it a lot is, oh, well, yeah, and flowers will fall and weeds will grow because we attach to things. Um, that's the problem, right? We just attach to things. Um, if the previous lines are an indication that, you know, we have to be careful with our attachments, even to the things that supposedly lead us to a liberation that lead us to, to out of samsara to nirvana, we, if we can't even attach to that, then flowers only fall and weeds only grow if we attach, or we only feel things if we attach to them in some way, shape or form. And I think I took that route of reading that for a bit. And I realized how one deeply unsatisfying that was actually. (laughs) Um, uh, And and also because I think it doesn't give Dogen enough credit. I think there's a lot more subtlety and nuance happening here. Um, And and I, and I, and I really see this sentence as as a statement of, of really getting cutting to the point of impermanence. Um, that it's like a really person, like this is the really personal sentence. Like everything else is very doctrinal, super doctrinal, um, technical even. Um, I think that this sentence is, is like the personal encounter. Um, that you know, we as human beings are attached or not, I think, I think, um, are not neutral in our relationship to things. We, we, we have positives. We have negative, we have positive feelings. We have negative feelings. We like things. We dislike things. We like, we, we want, we want to like this. We want to like our not liking or disliking. And we dislike our liking and disliking. Um, we can't seem to get out of it. <laughs> so um, we, we, we always have like a, like a mood toward things that we can't really seem to totally step out of. Give me a second. And I also think this this sentence of flowers falling, even though we love them, and weeds growing, even though we dislike them, says something about time. Um, I think this is sort of akin to me being afraid of losing things that I haven't even gotten to fully experience yet, four years ahead of time. And that you know, we are already disliking the future falling the future uh, flower falling, even though we like them blooming at the moment. We already dislike the weeds, the weeds growing, even though we may have liked, you know, like what the lawn looked like before that, or, you know, look to the future when we pull out all the weeds and do all the work and then they're gone again. Um, we're always out of step. And in a sense, they're kind of almost always out of step. And I think this is part of why the why that line that Dogen has about taking the backward step is a bit of a genius line. Um, I think Dogen, and especially for me, I think the reason why Dogen has always spoken to me that he he manages to capture this the this spe- specific emotional personal feeling of of being out of step and fig- in and trying to embody in body and mind what that is. And what it means to take the backward step in light of that. So, if everything we do, and I, I'm gonna 
assume that Okamura means really anything we do. So feeling, thinking, doing um, is prasna, then the flower is prasna, the weed is prasna, our, our, the flowers and the weeds of our own thoughts and emotions are prasna. All of this is, is part of manifesting suchness. It's all of this is part of actualizing the fundamental point. All of this is to answer the question from true reality through the practice of our everyday activity. Long, long words. <laughs> um, and in a way, we're always answering the question. Um, but the practice is becoming attuned to all the many ways that we answer both intentionally and unintentionally. So I, you know, as I was preparing for this talk, I, I think I had thought of this in the past before and i never really gave much more than a few sort of seconds sort of um fancy to it and i i don't know if i gave it much uh discipline thought um for this either but i i I, something i think that really stuck out to me is this specific feeling that he is that he is evoking in this line um points to a really classic um especially japanese um aesthetic term monono aware um which some of you may know um it 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 really sort of points to this direct emotional experience um one way it's translated is the pathos of things um i've always really liked it uh sort of described as the like <sighs> of things it's this perception of a connection between and, and like, it's an inseparable connection between the beauty and the sadness of the world. There's this attunement to things passing, things changing impermanence. Um, the, the term originally came up with, uh, with a, a really classic story, um, the tale of Genji. Uh, which is an interest, which is an interesting book. Um, um, it, but then there's very well-defined aesthetic codes, which we don't have, but I think there's a lot to be said about how aesthetics and how our religious and emotional and spiritual attunement. Um, I, I think it says a lot about that, about what this emotional connection is to this experience. And <clears throat> I think what Dogen is trying to convey in that line in 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 speaking to Manono Aware and, and in the the personal encounter, this aesthetic and emotional encounter, um one of the really key things that we that you see often in the Buddhist tradition and Buddhist literature is like how important it is to have the aspiration, how important it is to 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 have the resolve to be almost like prodded in a certain way um, to practice. And sometimes you see this in, 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 in Buddhist literature where uh, in sutras and stuff where it's, you know, they, they very clearly just state things like awake, you know, awaken the mind of aspiration, <laughs> awaken the mind of faith. And then they go on. It's like, wow, that's that easy. Huh? <laughs> um, and I appreciate Dogen for this reason. I, th- I think that this line, and I think in, in other parts of his writing, he he really connects with this em- emotion um, that awakens the resolve for enlightenment and practice that um, points toward this spontaneous and 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 spontaneous and deep attunement to Genjo Koan. Um, so. A pivot to, to, to Zazen more specifically, and of course, Zazen is not just sitting, though it includes sitting, but it also is, includes practice off, on and off the cushion, right? Um, if impermanence is something that in the Buddhist tradition we take as, you know, it's one of the three marks, it's one of the Dharma seals, it's it's basically just like there. You, you, can't, you can't deny that it's there, really. Um, then when we do just sitting, we're also just being with or, or, or being alongside impermanence, the rise and fall of our emotions, 
the rise and fall of our thoughts, the rise and fall of our likes and our dislikes about the state of our lives or the state of the world, not to throw them out the window, this, that this is part of our grappling with or, or contending with or, or being with um, the world. So just sitting is also just impermanence. Um, everything we do is prasna. Everything we do is, is impermanence. Uh, impermanence is inseparable from our daily reality. So eating is impermanence. You eat, you get hungry again. <laughs> you eat, you get hungry again. You eat, you get hungry again. Drinking is impermanence. You drink, you get thirsty again. <laughs> you get thirsty again. Reading is impermanence. You know, I, I'm sure that by next year, I'm going to forget everything I learned uh, in the last four years. Um, exercising is impermanence. This is a, uh, a this is something I can definitely attest to from this last year, uh, uh, from my sheer impermanence of my exercise. So, I understand this mononoawari. This this ah, this this pathos of things is really consonant with zazen. It's not so much that we're like looking for impermanence or that we're trying to do something against it, but really like thoroughgoingly letting ourselves or allowing ourselves to be right in the thick of it and responding however we respond. And sometimes that response is sadness. Sometimes it's regret. Sometimes it's anger. Sometimes it's joy. And those don't even say the same. <laughs> and so in the Genjo Kohanda, there's that very famous passage that you can also spend you know, millions of Dharma talks on and write millions of articles on about studying and forgetting the self. And there's a lot, there's a sentence in there where it says that we're actualized by the myriad things. And it's not so much that we wish or hope that mirror things turn out or, 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 or that they should be a certain way, but by being with them, being alongside them in their impermanence, we're actualizing, we're manifesting, we're answering the question with our everyday activity um, in the face of change. And I think, it, you know, I think it's worth asking too, what, what is, what is the question that, 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 uh, that Okamura is pointing at. And I think questions show up a lot in, in Zen questions show up all the time. And sometimes trying to answer them is you're at wondering what the question is in the first place. Is it impermanence? Is it, what do we do with impermanence? And I think the right practice, uh, the, 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 what, what is even the question um, is transformed even more to a sort of call and response as like a nudge from reality. So, in one way, we're always responding. Everything we do is prostate. We're always responding to things. We can't help but respond. That's what we do. We'd be dead if we weren't. And even then, you know, Dogen probably has something fun to say about that. In another way, we're, we're not paying attention to how we always respond. So we might as well not be responding. So I think Dogen calls us to notice both levels of this how we're always responding to change and also how we're not paying attention to how we respond to change. So you know, on the cushion, we experience this very simply, I think as, as sometimes you notice things and sometimes you notice that you didn't notice things, but then you're noticing things. Thoughts are a great example of this. They rise and fall. Sometimes you notice that you have a lot of thoughts. Sometimes you don't notice that you have a lot of thoughts. You're maybe caught up in them and suddenly you notice that you're caught in thoughts. <laughs> your feelings, the emotions that arise and fall, depending on what you're thinking about, depending on um, how, you, how, how you are hearing the sound of someone um, on Zoom, um, the feeling you have when you wonder whether or not Alex has forgotten to ring the bell or if he's fallen asleep, the pain in your knee, the boredom you feel, which I, I definitely know is also impermanent and is a particularly difficult thing to pay attention and respond to because it's boring. There's a lot of change and a lot of transformation, a lot of impermanence right on the cushion. (laughs) And 
for me, there's this uh, sense of almost like openness or something um, when things turn out otherwise. Like, oh, that, oh, I've noticed that that's happening and things have shifted just a little bit. There's a bit of a like light gradient shift, um, but enough to, to, to register. And I think we can bring that off the cushion. I think this is the importance of this practice to bring this off the cushion. Um, and, and I think there are different ways to phrase this. There's always different ways to phrase these things. I, how does impermanence show up in my life, in our lives? Um, and how do we show up to or with or alongside or whatever preposition in per, with impermanence? When I see that my life is going to go through some changes i can name the feelings embedded there and i can also note that feeling of well you know things keep changing and in that way things never change in that they keep changing um i think this points to some of the language of, of permanence that shows up in buddhist sutras which is always a little um can can knock you off guard when you're not ready for it um things don't always change for the better but things also don't always change for the worst um, and through our practice, I think we, especially off the cushion, we can recognize that this judgment between better or worse is often really unclear, really ambiguous, really blurry. Um, sometimes it's very clear. And that may speak to like, maybe the situation is simple. Maybe there's some kind of, I don't know, clear ethical, moral imperative of some sort. And I think we can be grateful for that kind of clarity. Um, but more often than not, I think I know that when I'm faced with impermanence, when I'm faced with things changing, um, the things changing make my judgment calls really unstable <laughs> um, and really difficult to keep still. So that it's even more important for me, for us, for all Buddhas, all sentient beings to just sit as things arise and perish to be attuned to how we're affected by impermanence and how we affect others and our relationship to it. I, uh, I don't, you know, I don't think you can put impermanence on a spectrum from less impermanence to more impermanence. It's just, it's just impermanence. Things just change. Um, and, but there, it is the case that certain things register as bigger things to us than others. And, you know, I, I saw a lot of, um, when I was doing chaplaincy at Rush a few years ago, and I'm anxious about it, but I'm also very excited about it. Um, do chaplaincy again next year um, at Rush um, and being beside quite a lot of people um, and a lot of family members um, at the moment of or right after death of a family member. And it really was just as critical for me um, to not just, you know, theoretically, abstractly understand that, yes, things pass. <laughs> um, we shall all turn to, you know, return to dust. Of course, of course. But there was something really, I could not truly attune with someone else's suffering. I could not really um connect <clears throat> in a in a deep human way um unless i were not also deeply attuned to the way that impermanence showed up in my life the way that impermanence um the way that i the ways that i liked and didn't like impermanence when it whether it fell or grew um and I think that's what I'm, I'm trying to get at here. And I think that's what Dogen speaks to. But I think um, both on and off the cushion, this deep aesthetic, emotional attunement, um, I think there's a, if, as much as there can be a key in Dogen's writings, I think there's a, there's a master key of a sort here too about what it means to connect deeply with um, our body and mind our emotions, the full spectrum of our, of our, of our, of all this mess um, so that we can better connect with all the messes out there because everything is blurry as hell anyway. <laughs> um, 
I think that is all I have. Thank you all for listening. Thank you very much, Howard. A really uh, fine talk, um, provocative talk. I have some comments, but I'll, I'll wait and just uh, ask people if they have questions, responses, comments for Howard. Please feel free. Mike. Howard, thank you for your talk. It was wonderful. Um, uh, could you, um, I think you you have a different translation of the Genjo Koan than the one I've read. Could you read the the last line of your translation? The one that you read earlier? Yeah. Is, uh, there's a lot of, um, I don't want to get too academic here, but uh, Stephen Hyatt has a whole article that's just like, here's all these different translations of this. <laughs> yeah. um, so the one I have is, therefore flowers fall, even though we love them, Weeds grow, though we dislike them. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it always strikes me the, I don't know, like it, it's it's the feeling that I got when I first heard that line, and it's and it's very clear in the translation you have. There's this like implication of um, that we like flowers and that we dislike weeds. Um, and like how impermanent that can be as well, you know, like some days flowers are very annoying or something for, for whatever reason, or, or we might enjoy weeds for whatever reason. Um, uh, and as you, as you were saying that and thinking, and I was thinking about that for, um, the duration of the talk. So I don't know, um, something to share. I don't know if you have thoughts on it or, or not, but, um, thank you. Yeah, I don't know. Um, because yeah, there's because of the different translations of this line, you can. There's also like, but our relationship to it um, is also sort of up for grabs a little bit here. Like I'm the the extent to which attachment um, plays into this is, is is a bit of a question. I think Ty can, can probably speak more to this um, because Ty can uh, has more intimate familiarity with Japanese than I do. <laughs> uh, but yeah, just to to make note that there are many different translations. Well, I, I think um, having, well, for any Dogen essay, having numbers of translations is very useful. And in this case, there's so many. And um, uh, yeah, so... Uh, there are some bad translations, but there's a lot of really, you know, pretty decent ones. So, um, yeah, I don't know. If, uh, the, the, we In our chant, we use causes. Um, I think it goes, flowers fall in our attachment. Uh, flowers fall in our attachment. Weeds grow in our, in our distaste or something like that. That's not it exactly. Um, but, yeah, I don't, I don't think, I think we get the feeling of it without needing to, get some precise translation and part of what happens in Sino-Japanese is there are all these overturns. So there can be two translations of some passages that seem really different and they're both, both uh, reasonable, good translations. So part, that's part of the subtlety of particularly Shobogenzo that there's a lot of uh, kind of poetic uh, overtones and that's partly the nature of Chinese characters as well, that they have a lot of, uh, multiple meanings. Uh, the, the one thing I wanted to say, uh, Howard, is that I really appreciated you're talking about aesthetics because I think aesthetics is, as opposed to rationality and defining some understanding, just aesthetic sense is so key to our practice. You know, how does it feel? What is, what does it evoke? What is, uh, and I'm not talking about it being beautiful, although, you know, that's okay. But uh, mono, you mentioned mono no aware, which I would translate as the poignancy of things. And um, although there's lots of ways to translate it. 
but there are so many Japanese aesthetic terms that are applied to uh, the way of tea or applied to garden design or applied to poetry. And a lot of them come out of the dynamics in Buddhist practice that you were talking about. So how we practice, how we, how we respond to impermanence and permanence and both and neither uh, is in some ways really an aesthetic uh, matter. How do we, how do we, and, and how we sit zazen is also, you know, how do we sit, uh, how do we practice in a way that is um, pleasing? Anyway, I, I, we, we could talk about that a lot, but I just wanted to mention that I think that's a really important part of what you said. Although you said a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, you told me not to talk too much. Um, <laughs> you know, you yeah. did fine. <laughs> <laughs> um no, yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your your uh, your thoughts on that. Um, yeah, I, I think I also just you know I can't help but also you know being myself, bring my own personal experience from this, and I and I've always had a very deep relationship with um, uh, uh, with Japanese poetry, and I it spent some time going through the Kokinshu collection of poetry, mm-hmm. and um, I think the the sort of Again, like aesthetic, emotional attunement, cap, like how much it captures in the like, like very, very few few words, um, uh, has been a nice contrast to, as most of you know, um, the very the more academic side of me that just turns out words because it's fun, <laughs> and it's a little less aesthetically emotionally tuned. <laughs> well, part of aesthetics is having fun and playing, and I think. Dogen's more about, you know, how do we play with what he's saying uh, rather than try and figure it out. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I, uh, other people probably have uh, comments or questions or responses, so please. Well, I, I've been thinking about this one for a long time and um, have been playing with the idea that that there is, as you say, a progression of in those four lines of first uh, the statement of when all all the dharmas are Buddha dharma, just a, an, an attempt to describe or conceptualize the world as dharmas and things, Buddhas, sentient beings, uh, delusion, enlightenment, practice, abundance, and scarcity, that sort of thing. And then the second line, washing everything through emptiness so that none of that exists anymore. So there are no Buddhas and sentient beings practice uh, enlightenment or delusion, um, no abundance or scarcity. And then yet saying, when you've done that, then we're, we come back because the, uh, the, the, um, the Buddha way is beyond affirmation and denial. We're left with what's present before us which is Buddhas and sentient beings, enlightenment and delusion, abundance and scarcity, not conceptualized in that way. So you're not thinking in this dualistic way anymore. It's just engaging with what's present before you. And that comes to the final point of even our our gains and losses, all our suffering and our joys are also present before us and our Genjo Koan. Um, so uh, it's a sort of, it's, um, you know, a celebrate, it's a celebration of life. It's a celebration of presence and existence in, in, in all of its aspects and all of its facets. And, and, um, and I think that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, I, and I you know I was as I was writing this, I think you know impermanence um, can get a bad can get a bad rap, right? Um, um, I because I started out from this place of like, oh, well, you know, um, things are changing and things are also kind of not great. <laughs> um, and I and I definitely you know when I talked about um, the changes in my life that will happen very soon, I I I, I 
definitely come from a place of, of more, more grief than joy. Um, but I think I was also very trying, I guess, consciously, maybe too much, um, trying not to lean too hard on the sadness. Because I do, I, I do think that, you know, the way you phrased it, Douglas, was, is, is beautiful and, and accurate. I think Tolkien very much is um, celebrating life. Um, uh, repose and joy, right? Um, it's not just not 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 just a not just a repose and sorrow. <laughs> um, and I'm reminded, you know, I feel like there's another version of this opening um, that's just not nearly as effective, which is the the very classic, you know, mountains are mountains, rivers are rivers, <laughs> mountains are rivers, rivers are mountains, mountains are mountains, rivers. Okay. Okay, great. Like, you don't have you don't you don't have as much of the the actual you know the feeling tone, um, of of um, of okay. But so mountains are mountains. What is what is this mountain? Um, what is this river? Um, how does it show up? How? What is my relationship to it? Uh, whether that's anger or joy or sadness or celebration or whatever it is. Um, and I think that this, yeah, this Dogen, especially that fourth line, really captures that the, the continuum of, of, of human emotion. So I just wanted to commend you, Howard, because it was a very lovely talk. And even though um, you're making a very big transition after spending four (laughs) years doing higher education and slogging through that uh, uh, (laughs) hellhole, your talk had such a liveliness to it that it's always wonderful to hear that liveliness can still happen after four years of further degrees. So um, good work, way to keep it alive and way to find the joy in that transition. Thank you, Jason. Um, I think the key is like aesthetic emotional attunement, like really, I think that's, I think that's how I survived. <laughs> I think that's also why the patience is wearing thin. <laughs> <laughs> Jason speaks from having just made a major transition himself. So he's uh, in, in tune with what you're uh, preparing for Howard. I want to add, just add one thing. I just feel like I the responsibility to add one thing, which is that that paragraph, which you really uh, wonderfully uh, expressed for us. Uh, also, uh, this comes from Tom Cleary, but also that, that paragraph can be uh, read as a description of the five degrees, basic Soto teaching, um, which is, uh, and I talk about that in my, Dongshan book in the last chapter, but uh, there's a little section. But the point is that part of what that what the that first paragraph is about is the integration of uh, lots of ways of saying it, emptiness and suchness, or of uh, um, all the sense of lack and the sense of abundance, the sense of you know, the integration of the many and the one in terms of our lives, not just as a philosophical context. So anyway, I just wanted to say that, just to put it out there as part of what's one way of hearing what's one way of seeing what's going on in that paragraph. Integration in so many levels, integration of study and and, and chaplain work, integration of, um, you know, what we what we sense on the cushion, and then how do we express that when we get out on the streets? You know, um, this. Is, so anyway, there's there's so much going on in that first paragraph. So.
really appreciate all that you said, Howard. Wade? Um, so, so Mike asked me to pull off the shelf um, <laughs> our copy of Moon in a Dewdrop, which contains Ginjo Koan, says translated by uh, Robert Aitken and Kaz Tanahashi. Um, and the last line of that first paragraph feels very different in this translation. And I maybe, Howard, you can speak to that or, or and or you, Tygen. Um, he says, yet in attachment blossoms fall and in aversion weeds spread. And to me, that seems like a much more technical point, which is to say like clinging, um, aversion or attachment, clinging causes, you know, um, causes these bad things to happen and, and therefore causes suffering. Uh, and so it seems, I don't know, to me, that seems like a more technical sort of point about um, dukkha and samsara than, than the translation that you used, which is more evocative, aesthetic, um, personal, intimate, maybe. I don't know. Neither good nor bad, um, but, but interesting. Uh, they feel like very different sentences to me i would not have thought those sentences next to each other i wouldn't they almost seem like they're not making the same point ultimately it's, it's funny you bring this one up because i when i was going through different translations to think about which one i would use <laughs> um tra translations translations and selections are choices right um uh i chose this one specifically because i don't uh at least from a or personal emotional perspective yeah that one does not resonate <laughs> um but i i see them as as saying pretty similar things i also think there's something to be said about like the valences in, in english um granted attachment um is a foundational concept it, it's you know standard word we use to translate um uh buddhist word um but also, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I think fundamentally it's not too different from using like and dislike. We just like and dislike is, is less um, intense um, than attachment and aversion or clinging and aversion. Um, so to say that even though we love them sounds a lot uh, tamer, I think, than attachment, in attachment. Um, disliking them doesn't sound quite as intense as um aversion does but yeah i don't know i i think i have you know i think there's there's something to be said about maybe how technical and, and maybe more intense attachment and aversion is as english words as opposed to loving or liking disliking um but yeah yeah i think most of the translations use terms like longing or antipathy attachment, aversion, to give the, to make the point that this is about um, not just like and dislike is pretty, you know, it's a sort of milk toast <laughs> duality. But I think that the point is that, that there's strong feeling involved in, and, um, and so that even, even in our suffering, uh, there is reality there that our suffering arises as an expression, a manifestation of Genjo Koan. And, um, and so I think those are, I think really pretty much all of the translations I've seen use strong feelings of strong attraction or desire, longing attachment or, or aversion of one sort or another to try to make that point that, We've gone beyond philosophical exercise, uh, conceptualizing the world and describing the world or analyzing the world in terms of Buddha Dharma and um, abundance and uh, abundance and lack, uh, enlightenment, delusion, practice, Buddhas, deluded beings, and and uh, and then going through emptiness. To come back then to there is this experience of life 
and that life is what is real. It's it is Ginjo Kwan. It's what it's reality as it's present to us, and and our suffering arises as part of that. So it's not it's not you know we we avoid suffering. We we love the beautiful. We hate the ugly, but in some way they are part of our life and are real. So anyway. I think maybe in impartial defense of the translation that Howard used um, is that it, it really does feel very personal. Like mm-hmm. I, I like and dislike things all day long, every single day. Um, I don't think I long for and feel aversion to things uh, nearly as often as I merely like and dislike them. Yeah. Um, but I definitely feel like, you know, the duke of my life is forged out of these minor likes and dislikes uh, just as much as it's forged out of like some grand longing or repulsion or, you know, all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree that attachment and aversion are, I think he's trying to make the technical point that, it, um, this is a sort of twist on traditional Buddhist by using traditional Buddhist kind uh, terms He's trying to make the point that this is a twist. This isn't the traditional way of we're of of what the, how the Dharma works and how we address suffering and how we view suffering. Um, it's not something necessarily that we fight to eliminate to make it go away, or at least not immediately. We recognize it and appreciate it as part of part of life, and so. You know, um, and so other translators will say something like longing and loathing for the flowers and weeds. Um, but th- I think to get to that more normal language and away from the technical kind of dry approach. getting back to aesthetics, I think different people might respond more or less to different translations, um, particularly maybe with Genjo Koan. So we each have our own way of hearing things. Uh, does anybody else have any further comments before we close? So I guess we can do the four bodhisattva vows and then have announcements. Thank you very much, Howard. Really uh, uh, very fine talk. Uh, thank you. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. 
I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. 